or in what sense God still expects wives to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5.22, which was just read, which says, Wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, is an unpopular verse these days. You may have had the experience like I've had of being at a wedding where this verse is read. And you hear it read and you look around at all the young, sophisticated couples around you and you can almost see on their faces what they're thinking. How quaint or how dark ages or how offensive. After all, we've made so much progress toward women's rights. These verses sound to people today like they were dreamt up by the Taliban or something. Well, I want to argue this morning that we've grossly misunderstood the Apostle Paul who penned these words. If I could use the word radical to describe those who years before it became popular began working for women's rights and women's liberation, then I'd say that in these verses in Ephesians, Paul actually out-radicals the radicals. First of all, I'd argue that Paul, like Jesus before him, would largely agree with the radicals' aims to give women more respect and more opportunities and more equality. And that because of that, Paul and Jesus were way ahead of their time. But then Paul goes one step further and out-radicals the radicals. He suggests that the way to bring about this liberation and this opportunity is actually submission. Now that's radical. Let me explain. First of all, when I read Paul and and I put him in the cultural context of his own day, it seems clear to me that he was one of the most radical revolutionary leaders that you could want to meet. We saw this last week in part one of this series on husbands and wives. And if you weren't here last week, you might want to get the DVD because these two messages go together with each other. Culturally, we saw last week that Paul was speaking into what, by our standards, was an extremely sexist, male-dominated culture. Women had few rights or freedoms or protections under the law. Wives shared their husbands' affections and intimacy with slave girls and with lovers. Wives existed primarily to bear legitimate children and to manage their husbands' large households. And often love wasn't something a wife ever experienced in marriage. Furthermore, we saw that almost all of the the household codes which the Romans and the Greeks produced at that time to remind people of their place in society, all of these codes reinforced the fact that women were inferior and so that they should be ruled by their husbands. And into this context, we saw that Paul's household code was a radical departure. Paul did something nearly unheard of. Instead of telling husbands to rule, he told them to love until it hurt. Instead of going on and on about husbands' responsibilities to, or I'm sorry, about a a wife's responsibilities to obey her husband, Paul went on and on about husbands' responsibilities to sacrificially love their wives. As we saw last time, this kind of teaching, wherever it was embraced, was transformational. It it, it upset life in the household as people had known it. Suddenly, tyrannical, selfish husbands were learning to tenderly love and to serve their wives and their children and their slaves. And you can be sure that wives didn't know what to do with this. 
This new freedom, this new attention and affection, this new respect and honor. And so we find signs in some of Paul's letters that women were getting out of hand, abusing their new freedoms to the shame of their husbands. And so Paul, for instance, in the book of Corinthians, he has to tell wives to chill out, to be respectful of their husbands, to stop talking so much in church, to stop acting like prostitutes, and to go back to covering their heads like proper ladies in that day did. You see, Paul's gospel, wherever it was proclaimed, was liberating. It liberated women. It liberated slaves. Just read the book of Philemon. It liberated Gentiles, as we saw two weeks ago. As Paul puts it in Galatians 4.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So as we saw two weeks ago in Ephesians 2, in the new age of the spirit that Christ has inaugurated, these old flesh distinctions are done away with. God has set his son Jesus on the throne of the universe. And from there, Christ is making all things one. King Jesus is putting an end to old hostilities. He's binding up the wounds. He's reconciling the broken relationships. He's restoring peace and unity. And he's starting this among his own followers, a brand new humanity that he's creating through his Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of the gospel, slavery can't continue. Bigotry, racism, sexism, classism can't continue. As well-known conservative Bible teacher John Stott writes, he says, our initial reaction to these liberation movements should be one of positive welcome. For we have to agree that women in many cultures have been exploited, being treated like servants in their own homes. We who name Christ's name need to acknowledge with shame that we ourselves have often acquiesced in the status quo and so helped to perpetuate some forms of human opposition instead of being in the vanguard of those seeking social change. Nothing in the paragraphs we're about to study in Ephesians 5 is inconsistent with the true liberation of human beings from all humiliation, exploitation, and oppression. On the contrary, to whom do women, children, and workers chiefly owe their liberation? Is it not to Jesus Christ? It is Jesus Christ who treats women with courtesy and honor in an age in which they were despised. So Paul preached a radical gospel of equality through Jesus Christ. But Paul goes one step further. He out-radicals the radicals. He also urges that the way to bring this liberation and equality is not by power, not by force, but through weakness and surrender. Radical, huh? Of course, Paul learned this from Jesus, the crucified Messiah. The king who reigned from a cross and who defeated his enemies by surrendering to them. And who told us that if we want to enter into the new thing that he's doing, that we should pick up our crosses and follow him. To put it another way, Jesus replaces the power paradigm with the service paradigm. 
And so Paul, like social revolutionaries after him, like Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi, took up Jesus' service paradigm. And they argued that weakness and surrender was the way to bring the liberation and the equality that God's kingdom is about. And submission is an expression of the radical service paradigm of Jesus, the crucified one. So I'm on a mission this morning to redeem the word submission. Because we're so steeped in the power paradigm today that when we hear the word submit, we immediately think of words like weak, victim, doormat, old-fashioned, dictator, oppression. But that's because we're not radical enough. We so quickly forget that Jesus' way is the way of the cross. The radical way of service, not the conventional way of power and control. And when we view submission through the lens of the service paradigm instead of the power paradigm, then it's transformed. So let me debunk four myths about submission. The first myth is that to submit is to be inferior or incapable. This myth assumes that a woman who submits to her husband must be unable to think for herself or lacking in confidence or ability. But this doesn't follow. The former First Lady, Laura Bush, recounted a story when she and, and then-President George W. Bush were staying overnight with his parents, the senior Bushes. George woke up at 6 a.m. as usual, and he went downstairs to get a coffee, Laura says, and, and he sat down on the sofa with his parents, and he put his feet up. And all of a sudden, his mom, Barbara Bush, yelled, Put your feet down! <laughs> and George's dad replied, For goodness sake, Barbara, he's the President of the United States! And she said, I don't care. I don't want his feet on my table. And the president promptly did as he was told, for as Barbara Bush, uh, not Barbara, Laura Bush observes, even presidents have to listen to their mothers. <laughs> even presidents have to submit to their mothers. But of course, this doesn't mean the president is inferior or lacking in ability. Submission just recognizes that we, pre we play various roles in life. And in certain roles, we choose not to exercise the powers and the abilities that we have on our own behalf. But rather, we exercise them for the sake of someone else who deserves our respect. The second myth about submission is that it means being weak and powerless. And here I think C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is helpful. Remember when Aslan, the great lion, was at the stone table. And he let the white witch's wicked helpers tie his huge, powerful paws and, and to shave his, his magnificent mane. And they were wary of him because they knew that with one swipe he could kill them all. But Aslan didn't. He submitted to their cruelty. It wasn't because Aslan suddenly became weak and helpless. No, he retained his dignity and his power the whole time. But he nevertheless chose to willingly restrain his power and, and to bring it under his control for the purpose of love and for the good of others. That's what submission is. The third myth about submission is that it's something that's forced on you by someone who's more powerful than you. And you have to take it. 
But that's not submission. That's oppression. Submission is something you freely and willingly choose. We saw that while other household codes of Paul's day encouraged husbands to rule their wives, Paul never does that. He only tells husbands to love their wives sacrificially. So men, listen carefully to this if you're married. It is not your job to enforce or police whether your wife submits to you. Let me say that again. It is not your job to enforce or to police whether your wife submits to you. That's between her and God. Your only business, it's very clear, your only business is to love her until it hurts. Fourth myth about submission. And that is that to have to love someone is a better deal than to have to submit to someone. When you really stop and think about it, it's kind of astounding that people get so bent out of shape that wives are told in the Bible to submit to their husbands, but no one gets upset that husbands are commanded to love their wives. Maybe it's because we have a false Hollywood notion of what love is. But Paul says husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Christ died for the church on a cross. Ouch! How is having to show that kind of love somehow a better deal than having to submit? In fact, love and submission are both branches from the same root. They're both shades of the same color. They're both chips off the same block. Both are expressions of the service paradigm that all of Christ's followers are called to. All right, well, with that background about submission, let's dig into our passage and we'll, we'll see this fleshed out in our passage, Ephesians 5, 21 and following. Let me briefly put our verses into context. If you've heard this passage taught on before, you've studied in, in depth, you may be aware that verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, is actually right in the middle of a long Greek sentence which begins up in verse 18. Verse 18 is where Paul commands us, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 21, further down where it says, submit to one another is actually a dependent participle describing what being full of the Spirit looks like in our relationships. And then starting in verse 22, Paul applies this submitting to one another to relationships in the Ephesian households saying that wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. And verse 22 is so closely connected to verse 21 that the word submit doesn't actually occur in verse 22 in the Greek. It's implied from verse 21. So literally, the outline of Paul's sentence goes like this. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 21, submitting to one another. Verse 22 and following, wives to your husbands, husbands love your wives. Let me paraphrase what Paul is saying here. When we are full of the Spirit, we will submit to one another. That is, the same Spirit which moved Jesus to die for His enemies on the cross moves us to discard the power paradigm and to adopt the service paradigm. And so we submit to one another instead of trying to get the other person to give us what we want. Now, if we view 
submission through the lens of the power paradigm instead of the service paradigm, then we're going to badly misunderstand it and we're going to wind up in a distorted mess, very much like the mess that a, a young Christian couple were in that a counselor friend of mine told me about. He told me that this couple came to his office for help and they had small children and their marriage was in big trouble. And the counselor asked the couple to describe their relationship. And the topic of husband and wife roles quickly came up, and in particular, this issue of submission. And it turns out that based on the teaching of their church, the two of them had agreed on a way to work out submission in their marriage. If the wife needed help with the kids or with the housework, she would ask her husband for help. But since he needed to retain the authority in the relationship, he would flip a mental coin in his head. If it came up heads, he would help her. If it came up tails, he would go back to the TV or the newspaper or whatever he was doing. And the wife would submit to his decision and carry on accordingly. Well, needless to say, this arrangement was a big part of their marital troubles. This couple had misunderstood submission. They were viewing it through the power paradigm. And they totally missed the fact that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, Christ has called us to the service paradigm. We live in light of the cross. And so as we walk in the spirit, we learn to serve one another and to submit to one another. Husbands express this by loving their wives. Wives express it by submitting to their husbands. But why the difference? Why does Paul ask wives to submit and husbands to love? Why not just ask both of them to submit or ask both of them to love each other? That would put them on equal footing. But, but what about this, you know, she submits, he loves thing? Well, one possibility that's often raised here is, is that the distinction between love and submission is just a cultural artifact. That the culture of Paul's day was still deeply male-dominated, as we've seen, and, and men had the power, and women didn't have the power, and women already were expected to submit. And so perhaps Paul was, in effect, telling ladies to sit tight and to just keep doing what they were already doing while he worked on using the gospel to soften up their husbands. If that's the case, then today for women to submit, or for wives to submit, would no longer be relevant. In fact, it would be a major step backwards. After all, women have gained much more equality and we aren't, they aren't expected to submit anymore. And so maybe if Paul was writing to our culture today, he would just tell men and women to love one another. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. And the reason that I don't think so is because of the rationale that Paul gives for why women are to submit in verse 23. He doesn't say submit so that you don't shake up your household. He doesn't say submit because you live in a dark and evil age and that's just the way it is. He doesn't say submit until the gospel enlightens our society. No, he says submit because your husband is your head as Christ is the head of the church. Well, the last time I checked, Christ is still the head of the church, thankfully. And I can't see any indication that this has stopped being a good analogy for the relationship between a husband and a wife. So wives, as best as I can tell, Paul's word to the wives of Ephesus is still God's word to you today. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord.
Radical, huh? But remember, this is about the service paradigm, not the power paradigm. Paul is all for women having greater freedom and equality. That's why he insists that husbands love their wives instead of ruling them. There's a place for social activism. But wives, don't fight the battle for women's liberation in your own marriage. Yes, stand up for equality and for justice for others, but lay down your own prerogatives at home. Follow the example of your crucified king. When you're filled with his spirit, you will adopt the service paradigm. Live it out in your own home. Start with your husband. Submitting to him is your first context to live out Christ's call to all of his followers that we serve one another. When husbands love their wives until it hurts and wives submit to their husbands, then Christ can reign in a home and can bring peace and the sweet, gentle unity of the Holy Spirit. But still, we haven't answered our question, why are husbands to love and wives to submit? Well, the best answer that I've heard for this distinction is that given by Brian Chapel. He's a writer and a seminary professor. Uh, he's counseled many couples, and he's written a, a book on marriage. And Chapel points out that men and women are uniquely different and that each has unique uh, strengths and weaknesses. Now, we can quickly get into overgeneralizing here, and so we can only speak of general tendencies at this point. But Chapel observes that husbands tend to control their wives by dictating, by uh, using their position or their strength to dominate and overpower. They might use their physical strength. They might use money. They might use the idea that they're the head of the house to dominate. Wives, on the other hand, tend to control by diminishing, by using their words and their emotional expressions to shame or to undercut their husbands. So given a man's proclivity, at least for many men, to dictate, and a woman's vulnerability, or given that, a woman's vulnerability tends to be physical. She needs to feel safe and secure. And given a... a Wife's proclivity, at least in many cases, to diminish. A husband's vulnerability tends to be verbal and psychological. He needs to feel respected. So in order to protect one another and to compensate for each sex, sex's unique weaknesses, God asks that husbands not dictate, but rather love their wives as their own bodies. And he asks that wives not diminish but rather submit to and respect their husbands. And then Chapel continues that submitting in no way requires that a wife suppress her gifts or her abilities for the sake of her husband, but rather that she express her gifts on his behalf to build him up and to support him. Now, the analogy of husbands and wives to Christ and to the church is very helpful here. Just as we as a church express our gifts for the sake of Christ's purposes and, and for the glory of his name, we lift him up. So wives express their gifts and abilities to lift up their husbands. So that's my KBT, my key biblical truth for this morning. When Christ steps into a family, 
wives lift up their husbands. The pastor who I worked with when we started a church in Washington, D.C., he used to like to say, when I started dating my wife, Sandy, my stock went up. People suddenly thought better of him because of who was with him. And I could say the same thing about Anne. When, when uh, I started dating her, my friends at work used to tease me after they met her. They said, Anne is such a cool together girl. What is she doing with you? <laughs> Wives are to do all they can do to elevate their husbands. The bottom line here is that men and women are different. God made each gender unique and complementary, and when a man and a woman come together in a marriage relationship, the analogy of Christ and the church is the best analogy available to describe how they're to live out that relationship. So husbands and wives, look at your king. Look at your king. He is a servant. He humbly laid down his life for you. You are to do the same. Husbands, don't dictate, don't dominate. Love your wife until it hurts. Wives, don't diminish, don't compete. Use your gifts and abilities to lift your husband up. Ladies, how much your husband craves and needs your respect. Now I know what some of you wives are thinking by this point. This all sounds great in theory, I'd be happy to submit to a husband who is a loving servant like Christ, but my husband ain't. <laughs> Boy, there's more laughter there than I hoped for. <laughs> Help, is there a way out for me? What am I supposed to do when my husband's idea of being the head is to be selfish or abusive or bossy or cold or critical or nasty? I realize this morning I'm talking to ladies whose husbands probably range from wonderful to selfish and annoying to downright abusive and destructive. And I do think submission has its limits. In verse 24, Paul does say wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. But I think Paul would also agree that everything doesn't always mean everything. Let me give you a humorous example just to make my point. Let's say your house gets broken into and you're talking to your friend and they ask you what the crooks took and they, they, your friend says they took everything. And you go over there lately and the house is empty but the garbage can is still there full of garbage. And you say, hey, wait a minute, you said the crooks took everything. Well, your friend is going to say, well, I didn't really mean everything. And I think Paul would say that too. The classic example is if your husband pressures you to break the law or to disobey Christ. Your first allegiance is to Christ. And I think Paul would say in that case, when I told you to submit in everything, I didn't really mean everything. But I think this is also the case if your husband is disobeying Christ and is betraying his calling as a follower of Christ, if he even is a follower of Christ, by abusing or demeaning or controlling or neglecting you. In these cases, Christ's best for you may not be for you to enable your husband to continue in his sin by putting up with it or hiding it or making excuses for it. 
Now, that's a complex issue which requires a lot more detailed attention than I can give it right now, but I thought it was important to at least say that much. Well, let me conclude with a picture. There are so many practical areas we could go with this topic, how, how submission applies to jobs and careers and parenting and making family decisions, household chores. But without going into 100 case studies of you know, what to do in every particular situation, let me at least leave you with a visual picture which I think you can apply to many of those situations. Here it is. When wives submit, they lift up their husbands. When husbands love, they lay themselves down for their wives. Wives lift up, husbands lay themselves down. Just as Christ, uh, the church, just as the church lifts up Christ, just as Christ lays himself down for the church. So wives, here's your challenge. You had a week off while the husbands worked on theirs. I hope they did well. I hope I did well. <laughs> but wives, here's your challenge. Next time you're confronted with a situation with your husband where you're not sure what to do, ask yourself, what kind of response would lift up my husband? And then walk in the spirit of the one who taught us to serve. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we live in a time where so much is up for grabs, where the gender wars wage strong and fierce, and there are so many casualties, divorces, broken homes. Um, and we find these things very difficult. There's always more to be said. There's always something else to be discussed as we try to work out what it means to be faithful to you. But God, I pray that the one thing you'd burn into our hearts is that you set us the example of love and service. And I pray that you would start by changing our hearts and giving us all hearts that would choose to submit ourselves to one another, to lay down our rights and our privileges and our wants in order to serve and love and build up one another. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a closing song in response.
Please join us in the benediction. And the, the peace, peace of God, God which, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. That concludes our service. Go in peace. Amen.